That story was written 5,000 years ago by patriarchal culture that had an agenda. Let's get rid of the goddess because we're all about the sky gods and we got to bring that in. The snake, often in older times, connected with the goddess. So hmm. let's get rid of the snake too. But if you read the story of Genesis itself, it's interesting because God tells Adam and Eve, you can't eat from these trees or you'll die. And the snake tells Eve, you can eat from the tree. Go ahead, you'll just wake up and you'll become like God. You'll know things, right? Eve eats the apple and so does Adam. And what happens? They don't die, do they? They awaken <laughs> to certain things, right? So he's here's a liar. He's a liar in the story, right? It's, yeah. it's like what we advertisements are now. It's a way of manipulating, a way of showing a certain box because this is the agenda or the paradigm we want to push. That's the turning point in the mythology of Snake. Whereas before that time, Snake was the advisor to gods and goddesses, the mentor to royalty on Uraeus of the Egyptian snakes with Shiva and Vishnu. And we have the snake over the Buddha protecting him during the rainstorm. So there's a lot about Snake before this time. It's known as the all-wise creature, the wisest creature, even the Bible says that, right? Sinners. I'm Adam Knox and welcome to another episode of The Cult of You as we explore the segment of the interview with the devil. Here where I get to talk with interesting and controversial thinkers on the subjects of occultism, spirituality, and personal alchemy, if you will. My guest today has been a delight to talk to and I really think you're going to find some rich incredible value in this conversation. Don Bauman Brunke is the author of Shadow Animals and several other books, including Dreaming with Polar Bears and Awakening the Ancient Power of Snake. She's also created tarot cards inside of this arena of animal communication, which is really where much of her speciality lies. And I gotta be honest with you, for most times in my journey in the spiritual occult and alternative ways of thinking, even I batted a little bit of an eyebrow at the idea of animal spirit communicator, but when I first opened Dawn's books and I started really researching her, I could find somebody that was really in touch with the fundamental meaning of what was going on at these deeper levels of consciousness. This one specifically spoke to me and that's why I chatted about it in the book review and I had to get Dawn on the show simply because it opened my mind to a new perspective, one I didn't think about before. I was always someone that really looked at, at the shadow projection very much in relationship to other people and, you know, general world events as it is, so to speak, as the Huna magician would say, if there is a tornado in the land, I would contemplate where is the tornado in me. Not always necessarily taking things that literally, but really reflecting on those areas. But the area I didn't think to look was the animals that sometimes freaked me out. You know, whether it was scorpions that would pop out of my bath in South Africa, or if it was tarantulas, which I then owned in order to kind of deal with and build a relationship with, or snakes. I took on the adventure of really finding the things that were fearful, but I never went myself and looked at them as shadow projections or recognizing their manifestations in the negative 
ones that responded or created reactions within me as shadow projections. However, opening her book and really looking at them from that perspective, not saying that they're all shadow animals, but they're projections or we're able to use them as projections for our shadow. And this can also be why many of us have unique experience with different animals in a positive and a negative sense, but it opened up something more interesting. You see, the discussion doesn't just talk about our domestic animals or animals even in the wild or reptiles and creepy crawly things like that in our projection of a shadow in that. But it talks about also the global collective. We look at the sacrificial goat, the scapegoat, if you will, that's so proud and rich in our path. And, you know, one that you know that I am deeply in love with and deeply associated with, as well as things like Cthulhu and her work on the Kraken and some of these unconscious ideas. You'll see us kind of dive down and explore the potentials of these shadow interpretations, not to say that they are law and set in a certain way, but almost navigating as you see us playfully workshop together some of those ideas to discover them. You'll also find in this discussion today how we look at these global symbols of these shadow animals in our society and history, the impact that it has. We discuss Odin and his animals and what that has represented or what the possible meanings or implications are of these things. We cross the borders into the biblical context, of course, speaking about the snake and the serpent and its various correlations, and then open up in various forms of shadow work and shadow practice. So whether you are a seasoned occultist, whether you are a practitioner of the magical and mystery path, whether you are someone that's just passionate about shadow work or personal development, I'm confident you're going to enjoy our discussion today. So sit back, relax, and as always, remember to live deliciously. Don, it's an absolute pleasure to finally have you on the Cult of You. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me here. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. It's a bliss. It's a blissful experience. Like I've been sharing quotes on of your book on like all my social media platforms. And I think a lot of people are like super curious because there's just so much juice there. Firstly, thank you for creating this piece. It's amazing. Thank you. One of my favorite starting quotes, like right off in the bat was, and I just want to get it right here. Shadow teachers may first test us to see if we are indeed ready for them. That was a powerful thing. I mean, for two reasons. One, I never considered the idea of my shadow projections showing up in animals. We typically consider them as just our projections in humanity and society. And then we look at the global shadow, but it was such an obvious one when you said it, especially not only personal animals in our lives, but the metaphorical ones historically and how that kind of catches up. So how is, shall we say, even this gate of fear 
a doorway into our healing and into our journey. Yeah. Uh, so just a couple little answers here. I, I wrote the book because I really was interested in the shadow itself and how to work with the shadow. And my background's with animals. So I thought animals really work with us in so many gentle ways. And they're so helpful as guides, as mentors, as advisors. My experience with animals is generally as they're very helpful. And so shadow, working with shadow, I don't know that it's beginning material, right? It's a little intense. Mm. And I think it requires us to be at least somewhat grounded and centered and have a certain spiritual maturity, if you will, about going into these dark places. And so I do think, and I've been tested many times by different animals, it's almost like, are you ready for my teaching? Let me just make sure. Because mm. I think go in not prepared, it can be more damaging than not. I'm thinking of snake right now and the Kundalini energy, right? And yeah. snake is this, in the Eastern tradition, this serpent energy curled at the base of the spine. And it really tests us to make sure we're ready for that type of awakening through mm -hmm. our chakras, through our energy being, right? So there's a testing that goes on. I think it asks for us to have responsibility, to be consciously responsible for going into this work. So when I say testing, I don't mean it like you go to a little office and get tested, but I think <laughs> animals have clever ways of engaging us and seeing if we're ready. In the book, I talk about a cat that was my first shadow animal as a, as a little kid. I was seven or eight years old, and I won't tell the whole story now, but I'll just say that, and I didn't understand the shadow at that point, but cat was persistent and would show up in my dreams and it would show up as an observer watching me over and over again. A lot of times I'd forget the dreams and then I'd have the dream and there would be the cat on the refrigerator watching me and I'd remember, oh, this is a dream. I've had this dream before. So there was a sense of cat testing me until I could bring that into consciousness and be aware of, oh, cat is a teacher mm. and perhaps it has something to show me and it's something that scares me. Am I ready for that? Yeah. So that's what I mean about shadow animals testing us and making sure. And I think it's a good thing, right? It's again, that's why I say I feel like animals, many animals are very gentle with us in terms of making sure we are ready and then helping us to explore what shadow is. Yeah. I think that's incredible. And there's a lot of resonances inside of that. I love the idea of the responsible and mature that you need to be in order to really work with this. Because again, a lot of people are in their immature and the shadow projections or even the darkness within their own being overruns them. And right. they're right. I mean, we get triggered by our shadow. Our shadow continually triggers us. And if you believe the problem is out there with the bad driver, or the bad politician, or da 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 a million and one things, right? You're caught in this little loop. So yes. you're really not able to step out of it. And so what's the fear side of that? Well, perhaps that is part of me, right? That's always what the shadow asks. What part of that out there that you don't like is actually part of you? And what are you triggered by and responding to? Mm. So that in the sense of being able to respond, responsibility, able mm. to respond in a deeper, more connected, more mature way, more observing way. Yeah, less judgment. Less judgment, that's the big key word there. I think it's, yeah, it's, no it's the function of ego to judge, to keep right. us away from the shadow. And that kind of reminds me of, because as you were describing that, you were talking about snake in terms, and you're talking about the cat in terms of dreams, 
I remember owning a couple of snakes this one time, and I resonate a little bit with your story as well because my mother also refused to come and visit my house during that time, and I believe your father also wasn't a big fan of the experience. But I remember connecting with them, and they would slither into my dreams. Oh, nice, yeah. They would come into my dreams, and I thought about this deep symbolism in terms of the path. We have the snake in the Garden of Eden that kind of comes in there that gets referred to as the bastardization as being cast on its belly and it's impure and it's unclean and it's the mark of evil and it becomes the symbol that gets branded in terms of sexuality and also these ideas of the feminine just being repressed. I'd like to get your, I know you've got an entire book on snake and your work with snakes. So we won't go too deep into that one because, you know, this is the focus here, but can you maybe just open up a little bit more of that symbolism of snake and Kundalini yeah. and why we fear it so much? Yeah. 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 My, my chapter in, in the snake book about that is called what happened in the garden. What did happen in the garden, right? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar, but from what I learned and read is that story was written, what, a Five five thousand years ago, by patriarchal culture that had an agenda, and the agenda was to let's get rid of the goddess because we're all about the sky gods, and we got to bring that in. And the snake was often in older times connected with the goddess, so oh. let's get rid of the snake too, right? Yeah, all of that we want to get rid of. But if you read the story of Genesis itself, it's interesting because God tells Adam and Eve, "You can't eat from these trees, or you'll die." And the snake tells Eve. You can eat from the tree. Go ahead. You'll just wake up and you'll become like God. You'll know things, right? Eve eats the apple and so does Adam. And what happens? They don't die, do they? They awaken to certain things, right? So here's a liar. liar in the story, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a story, too. Remember, it's a myth. It's a story. It's a way of... It's like what we advertisements are now. It's a way mm -hmm. of manipulating, a way of showing a certain box because this is the agenda or the paradigm we want to push. Okay. So yeah, with that story, Joseph Campbell and others say that's the story. That's the turning point in the mythology of Snake. Whereas before that time, Snake was the advisor to gods and goddesses, the mentor to royalty on Uraeus of the Egyptians. You see a lot of um, in Indian culture, for example, snakes with Shiva and Vishnu, and we have the snake over for the Buddha protecting it during the rainstorm. So there's a lot about snake before this time, which is, it's known as the all wise creature, the wisest creature, even the Bible says that, right? These are the yeah. wisest of creatures. And then we have the story and everything shifts, not right away, but things shift right over time. And snake becomes the deceiver and the tempter as along with Eve, along with the goddess, all of mm. that. So we have this really big shift from um, the matriarchal goddess energy or very intuitive nature oriented, we're working together to this more very rigid patriarchal power over hierarchical separation of man and nature. Man controls nature, controls animals, controls women. Right? So we have that separation, that schism that's happening. Now I lost what your question well, was. I mean, that was, that was just, you opened up on a lot of good things. So I actually want to just add on to everything that you said. Yeah. Okay. Good. A few thoughts there. Firstly, I loved, I had a humorous little giggle when you were pointing out the snake coming over Buddha and protecting him against the rainstorm. And it was quite funny that Yahweh was a storm god. Right. So yeah. I thought that was a little bit of a personal tidbit of humor to add into that one. But Again, you point out a lot of the repression that we had of the wilderness in, inside of ourselves, of nature and man's right. attempt to control this. And many other uh, scholars, again, agree with this point very much. And we know that 
the idea of God in the garden almost being the bad guy is a classic Gnostic view as well. And it's reflected by many of the writers in the Nag Hammadi text as well, where they say, quite frankly, who was the bad guy? Because the snake didn't lie. God was the one that lied and then was the one that denied eternal life as well as the process. Very interesting in terms of that kind of manifestation of ego or that mm-hmm. kind of as a way to repress the unconscious nature or, or the portion of our nature that's become unconscious. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. That's really key, isn't it? Because mm. this is all happening inside ourselves as well, right? It's not just this story. It's a story inside ourselves. It's a story of humanity that mm. we're telling ourselves. And you're right. That's where that huge suppression came. I think that's the turning point. The story is just a metaphor of that turning point of that shift from connection with nature and the wilderness and our unconscious, our subconscious. I think there was more free flowing openness there to this more structured hierarchical, everything in its place, power over paradigm. Yay. So yeah, no wonder we're disconnected right now. Right. You know, speaking of disconnected, there was another question I wanted to throw in there, but you just raised something as well that was in the book. Because you pointed out how this, the sense of disconnection is very much related to our shadow in the sense of we've disconnected from these portions. We're projecting them out into the world for ourselves. So no wonder we're not feeling intimacy. We're not feeling the purpose of religion, Relegara, is to reconnect after mm-hmm. all, mm-hmm. right? So, so mm-hmm. how do we reconnect? How do we reconnect then with the shadow in a way? You give a couple of, you give tons of really unique and interesting exercises that I've been devouring. But one of the things that was interesting for me is you spoke about Robert Bly's methods and others as well. I want to just get your sense. What is your sense of integration with the shadow from the identification period to the full ownership of it in your own life? If you can maybe give us a walk through an example. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because what is the shadow? It's the stuff we don't want to see. The shame, the fear, the anger, the grief, everything we push down. And as you say, so that Robert Bly calls it the long bag we drag behind us, you know? And we get it so early as little kids telling our children, you got to be quiet and you got to behave and you got to da 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 Right? So no wonder there was oppression, right? In other words, Robert Blythe, when he calls the long bag we drag behind us, we have all this stuff that's building from our childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, and all the way through our lives. So it becomes very, very, very heavy. So how do we deal with that? Sometimes some of that stuff, it comes out. And as you say, we project it out there again. You know, politicians, different races, different religions, whoever they are, right? Whoever they are is out there. And we disconnect from that. They're the problem. It's out there not in here, you know? And we tell ourselves all, all kinds of ways why we rationalize why exactly those are, that's the problem out there rather than taking responsibility. So again, I think it is about seeing that. How do we see that? Maybe start in small ways. What's my trigger? Bad drivers. That's my husband's, he loves that. That's their problem. <laughs> you know? Can we recognize that? Can we sit with that? Can we get, and there are bad drivers, right? There are, that's for sure. But why does it trigger us? Why do the things that trigger us, why is that? And what does that speak to within ourselves? So the first part, I think, is the uncomfortable part, which is sitting with that. I call it sitting with it, because to me, that's how I do it. You're right, my book has 13 different ways of doing this, but I really like the one about sitting with what is uncomfortable. It's kind of a Buddhist way, huh? Feeling the feeling, that's the trip. You can't go into rationalization of why they're the problem. That's It's the feeling. 
It's yeah. how do I feel? My jaw gets tight. Really, start physical. My jaw gets tight. My ears start to buzz. You know, I get, uh, like I want to, uh, somebody. Don't so feel that. Where does that come from? And you sit with it. And the longer you sit with it, a curious thing happens. It actually starts to dissipate. It's a feeling. It comes and goes. And we're not triggering in that circular, um, they're bad because of da 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 Mm. We're sitting with the feeling. I think that's a sense of owning it. We're sitting mm. with that. We're owning it. We're feeling it. It starts to dissipate. And then maybe if we're lucky, you may have to do it a few times, a few dozen times perhaps. <laughs> but if you're lucky, you get to a point of what I call curiosity. You're, hmm, why does that trigger me? What is that in me? And then I like to go in and I like to feel where is that part of me? And sometimes I'll see things, you know, I'm kind of a, a inner journey type person. So sometimes I'll see a part of me. Maybe it's a little girl. Maybe it's an angry teenager. Maybe it's an old woman who's just pissed off at the world, right? Whatever that is, I feel that part. And what does that part have to say? So again, bringing up the curiosity. What does that part want me to know? So maybe you begin an inner dialogue and you start to find things and there's correlations. Pattern recognition is really helpful here. Mm -hmm. When you see things, then in your days of things that bother you or things that might correlate to that or to speak to that, right? Dreams. For me, dreams are huge. And I often yes. have dreams where I remember one shadow animal or a shadow I was dealing with, it came up as a small cub, a leopard cub, I believe it was, or jaguar cub, that I found in my grandmother's closet. It's speaking of ancestral energy. It's speaking yeah. of something that has been closeted, put away. And so mm -hmm. things like that, they just come to us and we sit with them and the more curious we are, I think the more it bubbles up and something happens then in me. It's just like a, you know, a release. And mm. then those things don't trigger me. That's the final exam. Is that triggering me? No, that guy is a bad driver, but it's not, it's not going to make affect me. you. I don't want to shoot him with anything like that. Right? Uh, yeah, you're no longer, you're no longer <laughs> in reaction. Bad driver. We've all been bad drivers, right? <laughs> oh, exactly. Exactly. You're no longer... Yeah. In that reaction, you're in the response. There's a couple of keys Correct. that you said there, and I just want to I want to emphasize them because they were there's such juicy little gold drops of wisdom there. The first one, and I love the quote from the movie The Matrix, where Neo is sitting next to the one guy, and he's like, "Do you always look at it in code?" He's like, "Yeah, you have to because the result works for the Matrix." And it's this idea that you're trying to interpretate this from the logical point of view. You can, because that point works for the matrix. The ego is going to always go, but I'm not such an idiot or I'm not such a bad driver <laughs> because it's trying to keep resistance from the shame. And you have to open up to the yeah. somatic body and feel yeah. into that. And that's a core thing. I was in the gym today and there's that one individual in the gym that's throwing down the weights and it's super loud and he's just no respect is the first thing that comes up in my body and i feel this immediate reaction and i'm like let me just step let me just sit and feel with it and i i remembered being a child and hearing my father scream at me for making too much of a noise and i realized by shaming that part of myself i was shaming other people that were doing now they were making noise and yeah. they weren't they weren't being respectful to their elders and i was like whoa and again like you said once i recognized that and i could own it and i could release it suddenly this wasn't an, a big thing and another thing that you also pointed out there is and i think joseph campbell says this as well all religions are true in that the symbolism is true the myth mm -hmm. is true 
And the problem, I think, for a lot of people coming into shamanism, spiritualism, occultism, magic, the entire foray of spiritual delights, so to speak, is they take it so literally that they can't interpretate these unconscious yeah. symbolic things. Yeah. Some advice in that area. No, I just think that is true, that myths, stories, everything. Take it lightly. Take it lightly. It's showing you something, but it doesn't need to be literal, heavy like that. So... Yeah, I'm just, I just believe in dancing lightly through everything. It's offering us something. What is it offering? Is that helpful? And I think what happens with that is you start to let go of the rules. Not to say you break rules, but you, um, you realize the rules can be bendy, right? <laughs> and we can dance along with that. And what am I trying to say here? Really that I guess that working with the shadow is learning to be flexible. Mm -hmm. and learning to show up in ways that are rigid and hard, you know, that's kind of the, uh, you know, that paradigm encloses, right? Mm -hmm. So it's opening in a more fluid, intuitional, yet body-based way, right? So we're accepting all kind of all levels and we're working on all levels. And, and the more fluid we become, the easier it is to move from the psychological to the somatic to the metaphysical. We have more fluidity yeah. there. It's more fun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You have to be contained. Exactly. So part, I think part a lot of shadow work is really letting go of that container and mm. opening ourselves to the larger, more expansiveness of who we really are. Very fascinating because it's a really good description of the relationship with the feminine and the masculine within ourselves. Mm. Where the masculine's again like this structured in the box, very much in terms of that ego case. Whereas the feminine is this raw feeling nature and many are afraid of the feminine because of its vast roaming space it's not that simply contained and simply defined another kind of thought that came to my mind as i was reading through the symbolism and it's one i want to talk about very much is the goat and i have a deep resonance with the goat simply it's even my catchphrase living deliciously and it's quoted from the old kind of english idea and the symbolism of black philip and the goat and just the scapegoat in general what it represents which is also to me a sense of the mature hero the mature hero is willing to take the bad reputation without being defined by it it doesn't always have to be the good guy when it's in its mature warrior but one of the things that was interesting for me because we we're talking about the goddess mystery and the relationship with the snake and yahweh's wife in one kind of in certain portions of the myth that we're recovering now was Asura, who was also deeply associated to the goat and reading through your material it really kind of helped me perceive or at least this is the perspective that i started to come to realize is that our repression of the shadow not just at a personal level but at a collective consciousness level shows up so intensely on these rich symbolisms like the goat you highlight as the scapegoat can you help us understand goats a little bit better as well yeah let's start with pan now pan is this wild nature god it's almost like a feminine masculine togetherness but it is it is wild you know likes to drink likes to fornicate likes to dance likes to you know bend all the rules let's bend all the rules right right so it's out there it's a favorite god among village people mountain people you know the church didn't like it one bit because <laughs> it cannot be controlled right so hard, hard to keep what are we gonna do about goat right <laughs> exactly oh <laughs> uh, let's make goat dark let's make goat hairy and evil so we have all these projections and over centuries you know who do the artists work for the people who have the money right the church yeah. and the 
And the state, the devil gets goat horns and it gets hoofed feet and it gets furry body and it becomes, the goat becomes demonized as the devil, Mm. as what's scary and what's bad and what's, so we have this odd thing about goat. When goat offers so much, I think goat was one of the earliest animals to be domesticated. Goat gave milk and cheese and fur, Ashmere, big fan, (laughs) Um, you know. Loathing, warmth, you know, so much. And we see the early depictions, right? The, the horn of plenty, right? Then goat. And so anyway, we have all of this abundance of goat. And yet now goat becomes this demonized thing. And it's the same with scapegoat. In early times, village people used to gather and they would put their sins, they would give it to the priest or the person in charge and would put it onto goat. And a literal goat, a physical goat, right? And sometimes they do fancy things, wrapping its horn in red or putting a silver necklace on it. And you put all your sins onto goat and then goat will be sent off into the wilderness. Bye-bye goat. Bye-bye all our sins, right? a clever way of dealing with shadow you know let's just wipe it clean does it really deal with shadow no <laughs> it's gonna come back it's really not gonna do that spiritual bypass isn't it right yeah, proper just, proper and also projects to the of of society yeah. like oh god no yeah. everything else is yeah. now our sin oh. yeah so all of that comes up with goat. It's curious, isn't it? Goat. I just find goats such lovable animals. When you think about goats as why would that be? They're independent animals. They're yeah, goats are kind of free free thinkers. They're very curious. They want to get into things. They're very smart. Get into all kinds yeah, of places. So- like if you look at the mountain goat and all the unique spaces that it can go to and the fearlessness that really comes with that, as well as it explores its own mystery. It's a very fascinating right. creature in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So again, that would be a projection on an animal that wants that some people want to be controlled. So mm-hmm. let's make goat this bad thing. Let's make goat this thing we sent away. Let's. It's it is interesting. Why we choose the animal? You know, respecting you were thinking of collective energies, collective projections. Why do we choose goat of all animals to do that too? It's it's so fascinating. I was having a discussion with students of mine, and I was talking about one of the things when we're working with the spirit is to recognize the idea of resonance that if we want to work with a certain type of spirit we need to come into resonance with that but we also need to recognize that resonance is what makes us project inside of the environment in very specific ways we project onto people these components of shadow also our light and our darkness because we'll overemphasize the other parts as well inside of humans what's a phrase that kind of came up while we were sitting in meditation in one evening while we're going through the spray so this experience It was a Hebrew word, but its translation really talked about eating the self or eating the false self, consuming the false self. It was a fascinating concept and I meditated on it and it was coincidental that right after that I picked up your book. And then as I picked up your book and I was reading through these ideas, you pointed out some of the work also when we talked about Robert Bly earlier, but this idea of shadow eating and... It just all connected. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. And this, there's this idea in the left-hand path or in the darker side of the tree of life. And this idea is, it's known as the poison of Samael. And we see this as the negative or shadow aspect of Mercury. Whereas Mercury in the front of the tree is oftentimes decided as that very rational component we've been speaking about. Where the other side is almost referred to as the garden of madness. 
And it's in the Garden of Madness that we become irrational in the sense of we're no longer enslaved to the rational and we're opening up to the emotive kind of sense. And to drink the poison of Samael is a slow drinking, right? Because we've mm. got to slowly kill off this idea. And when I was reading this concept of shadow eating and mm. also like almost taking it in bits as we eat the shadow, we take it back into ourselves. Talk about yeah. that for me a little bit. That was yeah. a fascinating idea. Yeah, that is what it is, isn't it? It's taking back in these pieces of ourselves. It's reclaiming our shadow. And with reclaiming, I think we go into why we originally made it shadow. What was shameful? What did we judge? What did we abandon, put away? And we begin to, like I talked before about those dream selves might come up or lost selves of our childhood or whatever it is. And they start to come back and we start to eat them. You know, that's the metaphor. We start to reintegrate them. We start to take that back in. And here's the good thing, is that we also bring the gifts of that shadow. We had the response of abandoning that part of ourselves. Now we're reclaiming it. We're bringing it back. We're healing that part of ourselves. It's a kind of soul retrieval, really, a bit of a soul retrieval and bringing that back in. And then we benefit in a conscious, more holistic way of incorporating the gifts of that self. Because when we lose a part of ourselves, yeah, we might not have to look at why we felt bad about it, but we lose a gift. We lose power and mm. energy, mm. Uh, uh, a part of ourselves. And with people who have lost a lot of that, no wonder they feel tired. Their energy is all siphoned off and put away. And by bringing that back in, we become more. Robert Bly speaks about it beautifully. He's a poet, right? So he mm. speaks about it beautifully. We bring back this energy and we become more vibrant. We become more alive. We waken up more and we bring all these things back and incorporate them and integrate them, which is an awakening, isn't it? That's what an awakening is. It's a remembering, a bringing yes. back of our members, the members of ourself, of our soul. Yeah. I love, I love that because again, like I think a lot of people, darkness for a lot of people, it's not that darkness is bad, but when darkness is immature, it's bad. And yeah, what, but that's what same thing with light, like, isn't it? Yeah, there's exactly. light can be immature. So it, and we have it at that both ends. When we were speaking before about the masculine feminine, yeah, we have the far extreme on both ends. And mm. I want to imply patriarchy is bad or matriarchy is, you know, they're what we're looking for is balance, what we're mm. looking for. And that's what speaks to Snake again. And a key theme in that book was Snake's the master of transformation, of bringing together that which was separated. Mm. Even the figure eight, right, of Snake, mm. it brings back together. And it helps us put in balance our masculine and feminine sides and find a center in that. So, yes, we still have the extremes, but they're balanced, right? Oh, so we bring yeah. maturity, centering and anchoring to all of that and an expansiveness to all of that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. The cure for God is the devil, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I'm taking it. I'm really amplifying it as a Hollywood kind of title there. But it's that idea. It's that kind of resolution that the snake actually provides for the very same thing it was cast away from in terms yeah. of its symbolism. So, yeah. again, yeah. evidence of shadow work and its riches. So this is rich. I don't want us to just stick. Even though shadow work is the root of what we're doing, there's so much more of the interesting ideas that you propel as well. And I've been doing some exploration of you and your work and some of the other material. And I was listening to a discussion from you around your experience in your book, The Polar Bear Dream. And mm -hmm. this kind of notion, this really opened me up because I've always found the idea of animal communication and all those things very fascinating. But I feel like there was a lot of kind of woke culture around it where they really disconnected to deeper possibilities. 
you had some very interesting experiences. You also didn't start on that path by default. It was something that your interview process, your research led you to. And then during that, you had a slight kind of out of body of experience, I think, trying to connect with a, with, as an eagle. I forget it was flying over. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> tell me a little bit about connecting with animal consciousness and how is that work? Describe that experience so that the layman that's going to be super curious now also has an <laughs> understanding of what the expectation is when he should start exploring that really. Yeah. The eagle experience was, it was just, it just happened. I was in the mountains with my daughter and my husband, they were off walking and I was walking and I looked above and there was this beautiful eagle sailing above. We just beautiful skies. And I thought, I wonder what it's like to be an eagle. It was just innocent guys. And all of a sudden I was in the eagle consciousness looking down and I knew it wasn't imagined because I could see so clear. I mean, I wear glasses, right? So I could see so clearly and it wasn't a human way of seeing it. It was a a telescopic way of seeing. It was just so amazing. And it was so amazing that I freaked out a little bit and was back in my body. So it was just a very small taste of what that's like. And that really fascinated me and led me to a lot of different experiences. And the polar bear experience was more about dreaming and being in the dream world with another dreamer, a polar bear. I had these little dreams of walking in the Arctic and they were, I called them seed dreams. I'm a big dreamer. I love to work with my dreams, but these dreams didn't really open to anything. I was just walking with this polar bear. I could hear the ice crunch. I could smell. It was just very vivid, but it was just walking with this polar bear. And eventually, after probably a year of that, I woke up in the dream and I realized I'm dreaming. And I looked over. Polar bear was always to my left. I looked over and the polar bear turned its great big head to me. Polar bear heads are huge, by the way. It turned its head to me. And I was suddenly in its consciousness looking at me, and I knew it was in my consciousness looking at it. And I realized, we both realized, I think, that we were real people, a polar bear and a woman dreaming, joined in a dream, looking at each other, and it was a lucid dream. So it was an amazing experience. And I think I popped out of that pretty quickly too, mm. but it, it was an invitation of sorts. It was an invitation to dream with polar bears, to learn about lucid dreaming, I learned it in shamanic ways that there's this council of polar bears that really has been working with humans, especially and people living in the north in northern climates for a very long time. Their teaching had been lost. That was the same thing I got with snake. Snake, I had a dream of snake and snake was telling me its teaching had been lost. So both of those books were about bringing these teachings back to humans through my experience, through my dreams, through my research, whatever it was, but reconnecting um, us, humanity, huh? our spirit, with these amazing animal guides and teachers, mentors, advisors, partners, yeah. there's some dreams. Yeah. I love that. Um, I mean, again, uh, many, many years ago, if I heard the idea, I might have frowned it a little bit. The idea of like, do you speak in them? And until again, as I mentioned earlier, my experience with Snake, when snakes slithered into my dreams and I knew it was aware of me and I was aware of it. And there was a, yeah. there was a psychic relationship and yeah. it makes one curious because if we, if you do this work, if you resolve and, and young spoke about this as well, or you, once we resolve the animus anima complex, once we start integration of the shadow, it opens us up to the collective shadow. 
And we have a yeah. very limited understanding of what that is. And again, the shaman, the spiritual teacher, the guide has always been a facilitator of that other dimension of human experience. Here's the question I want to ask in terms of that. Was a lot of inner work and shadow work required before those experiences started showing up? Did the shadow work get promoted after or during that work? Which came first, the chicken of the or the egg, so to speak, in this one? <laughs> well, it's a yes to all. For me, I've been working with my dreams since I was a little kid. I couldn't understand how people didn't find dreams fascinating. So I started to dream journal. I think I was in first first grade or so. I was a little kid, oh. right? Right down my dreams. And I thought it was fascinating. Nobody else did. I thought I was the weirdo, right? Um, so, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I've been working with that for a long time. My, my focus in college was symbolic anthropology. How do different cultures speak about the divine? How do they connect? Wow. So I had that background and comparative religions. So I was always interested in how, again, how different cultures speak about the divine. So that was all foundational. And I guess my answer is that all of this led to these different things. When I worked with the snake, the snake book, again, I said that came from a dream. I worked with that snake and finishing up that book, I realized, wow, snake is like this amazing shadow animal. It's this animal that has such intense power, such gifts for us if we're willing to sit with our fear, if we're willing to be present to that. So that's what launched the shadow animal book because I knew there were other animals that had that as well. And then uh, it's kind of a good sneaky way of getting people to look at the shadow because nobody really wants to look at it except for weirdos, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> You've had to go through some stuff. You had to be a little bit different to think, oh, this is the yeah. way to explore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not really on a Nike promotional ad, like deal with this. Just That's not what they meant with just do it. <laughs> it's not right, just right. deal with it. It's <laughs> so... Very fascinating. There was something I listened to in one of your interviews that was just because I've been saying this thing for a very long time. And, I, and there was a story that I um, it's a common story and it's one I really don't like. And it's the one of there's two wolves in a man's heart. Yeah. And the yeah. one you feed is the one that wins. And I always thought this was the most pathetic story in the world because feed both. And then they'll yeah. love you. And if you cared for them, they that rough, tough one will protect you. Right, because yeah. now it's found theory, yeah. and you shared that the original story, and one of the that there's two versions of the story. Could mm -hmm. you share that a little bit with us? Yeah, there are many versions, and I always heard the one that you said in the in the very beginning when I was a lot younger. I thought, oh, well, that's nice. Let's feed our good wolf, you know. Yeah. Wolf, right? But when I was writing that chapter on dog, I call that chapter "Trust the Turns" and our relationship with dog, dog, wolf, coyote, fox. I was thinking of that story, and the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, that's a lame story. How can we shut off the dark wolf? That's what makes shadow in the first place, by judging that that wolf is bad, right? So I did a research on that, because I just couldn't believe it was, that's really the that's version right. that was real. And I did find it in some ministers, preachers from the 1960s and stuff. I can't remember who it was, maybe Billy Graham, people like that who used it as a teaching story. But I finally found the, what some people said was the original version, which was the grandfather says to the grandson, usually it's him telling him about the wolves passing on this advice. And he says, we have to feed them right. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to feed the wolves right? It means we feed them both, right? As you mm -hmm. say, we feed them both. We feed not just our bright self, our bright conscious self, but our shadow self. 
And I think that is a really key understanding about shadow. You know, we talked about eating shadow, right? This is like (laughs) the earlier part of it. You're feeding shadow as well. What does it mean to feed shadow? To acknowledge that wolf, to acknowledge those parts in ourselves that we feel are shameful or grief-stricken or whatever that is that we've judged Mm. and to listen to them and to bring them back into, you know, have conversation tea and scones, whatever you like, beer and pizza, you know, and to really share a meal, which yeah. is to say, share consciousness and it bring is. them back, back into relationship with all of ourselves. I, I call it a devil's dinner party. I want to come to your party. <laughs> you open up your shadow and you consume with your shadow. But I love that because yeah. again, I saw, I, I see snake again in that, that kind of yeah. eternal flow because it's the feeding them and the eating them, so to speak. Yeah, and, right, right, and the right. Of it that we can finally integrate it, perhaps. Yeah. And that's, I just want to mention this because it's hmm. such an interesting thing that Uroboros, which is the snake eating its own tail, which is both consuming and reintegrating, right? Yes, and I remember yes. looking when I was doing my snake book, I did a lot of visuals for that book and I was looking at something and I saw many Ouroboroses and none of them felt quite right. And then I saw one and I realized that Ouroboros, again, it's a circle of a snake eating its own tail. I was looking at it and I realized it's not just two-dimensional, it's actually a portal. It's mm. a portal into a deeper understanding. Mm. It's a portal into both consume, ingesting, eating, and feeding. Ooh. And there's something that goes in there. It's hard to describe because it's a feeling thing. Yes. But if you think of it as a portal, as where do I go into that? There's a new understanding that comes with snake, I think, in that way. Or with shadow in general. It doesn't have to be snake. But isn't it interesting that snake, that we represent snake that way? And that snake, you know, would it snake inspire in us to represent it that way? I think that is a good representation of snake and of snake energy and of the portals within ourselves. But it's not just the infinity sign. It's also the portal way that's, in. That's sacred. I mean, not only because yeah, it's a it is circles in general across spiritual cultures through the world i did a lot of work in sacred sexuality and one of the things that i highlighted in my teachings or my ideas or that i came to is that one of our biggest problems is that men especially younger men and women as well would externalize their sexuality very intensely they over amplify the value of other people and (laughs) until you go through that shadow work of actually resolving those dualities within you in which case the energy of our kundalini of our sexuality begins to now flow internally again and that's when that internal circuit gets reconnected and our self-esteem starts to grow and we become attractive instead of pursuant we're no longer desperate and we're now suddenly in a place where we don't need we're abundant and that's when we happen to start attracting what we're really looking for. Right. So the level of depth inside of this is just profound. Speaking of that, you have the chapter on the Kraken and the thing. Yeah. In, and a famous kind of a piece of it's not really a cult. It's just more horror fantasy, right? HP Lovecraft and Lovecraft himself wasn't really a fan of the occult in many ways. He was against it in many of his ideas, but he explored very deeply these Cthulian-like archetypal forces within the unconscious. And it was very fascinating because we also have the very water-like, many of those creatures and some of the myths, especially in the call to Cthulhu. What is the tentacle drive? What is this kraken beneath the ocean, you know, that we're facing? What is that symbolic of? 
I thought you were going to answer that. That's a good one. What no, is I, I, I want to hear what yours. Is that, <laughs> what is that huge thing? I think maybe it, that is, this is what's coming to me now. It's the shadow coming up and trying to grasp us. The way it grasps ships and pulls them down. It's something Clearly. from our subconscious that's calling to us. That's both frightening, but fascinating. Everybody wants to hear Kraken Tales. So what do you think? I, that's what I'm getting right now. It's something that calls to us from our subconscious, from our unconscious. Are you able to stand on the bow of the boat and really see it face to face? Not that you can see a tentacle, but if it yeah. came up, would you be able to stare it eye to eye? Um, then, if not, it's going to come up and pull you down, right? Yeah, that, that was the part that was so rich there. Would you say there? Because the tentacle, it's almost overwhelming. You're in this depth. You're overwhelmed by the body of feeling and the body of emotion and stuff that comes up. And I think it was Robert Moore that wrote in Facing the Dragon, and he defined the dragon in that context as infantile grandiosity. And our own mm -hmm. private grandiosity or our struggle with grandiosity mm -hmm. tends to show up mm -hmm. as dramatic terror in the body. Mm -hmm. And it's that. Oh, that's that fits. That fits. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. That was good. Yeah. That was that's good. another really good way of seeing it. Yeah. Uh, and we do, we are seduced by our own fears, aren't we? And we yeah. want to tell stories. Go on Facebook and listen to some people. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. It pulls us. It pulls people in. It's that we're morbidly curious with our own darkness. And but you're right. But it's infantile. It's more we'd rather keep spinning the story over and over than do something about it, than look at it, than go through the portal, than, than face the crack and, and start to look and start to do the work. That's really what it is, right? So it's doing keep... the work. It is doing the work. So then out of curiosity is then the possibility that animals are almost like a richer, deeper doorway for us into parts of the shadow. Because when we're trying to experience the shadow through humans, we're immediately coming up with our own limitations. And I think animals are easier. I do. Yeah. I do think they are. Yeah. But I certainly don't say that animals were limiting shadow to the animals. But yeah, I think the animals, it's a little easier to deal with it that way. That's why I wrote the book, you know? Mm. Um, almost a gateway in because yeah. you do point out the 13th animal, you know, <laughs> which was this. It's elves, the most yeah. dangerous animal of all. It's <laughs> It's such poetry. And I don't know if this was intentional, but I just love the fact that there was, because we've been speaking about the goddess and it's this almost in the occult, it's almost represented as this lunar dimension of ourselves. And we know the old classic lunar years where a lunar year was 13 months. And there's these mm -hmm. 13 chapters that kind of leads mm -hmm. us into this course. Was that in, intentional that just come about by happy accident? How'd that yeah, come no, about? I just, I worked hard to get that 13 in. And, and I had to argue a little with my publisher because they wanted the chapters to be successive. So there's part one and there's part two. Part yeah. one doesn't have chapters, part two does with 13. Okay. Yeah. 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 There's so many great pieces inside of this. It's also quite graphic, I think, for the person that's very shy of animals and their monsters and their curiosities. We open up with the kind of the rich arachnids and looking at the spiders and there's the details inside of that. And I think allowing oneself to open up to these things is very interesting. I want to explore, as we come to the end of our conversation, I want to get your ideas or your thoughts on this. We look at the old classic, some of the old classic archetypes that were there, for example, in the Norse mythology, and we look at the god Odin. And Odin we see traveling with the two ravens and the two wolves, and he's, he's on his steed, right? Which you have a very nice correlation with the nightmare, right? So yeah. uh, from your perspective, unpack that for us symbolically. What could those be symbolic of in terms of everything that you share? 
In terms of Odin uh, and uh, uh, wolves and raven or uh, the nightmare, should we go and what would you want to? Let's start with nightmare and then how that connects, as he's the writing. Yeah, for- I wanted to do a chapter on horse, and I I was really hoping that nightmare ha- entomologically had to do with a horse. It doesn't, but but That's there is something. Still sounds there great. is something about a nightmare which relates to horses in my mind. It's a riding away of us, right? We get ridden away into this into fear, into terror, into whatever our nightmare is about. Oh, yeah, that's about? right. Yeah, and our nightmares, I think, are helping us. I think nightmares can be really helpful and our, maybe we think of them as shadow dreams, as an invitation to the shadow to look at something that we don't want to see. And there is something about movement. I'm even doing it right now. And that particular exercise is about moving with horse. And horse is so interesting in terms of our alignment with horse and our history with horse and riding horse. And, you know, horse is used uh, therapeutically for people to, yeah. to learn. There's exquisite alignment that goes. Why do we talk about centaurs? That's yeah, kind of an ancient look at this joining of consciousnesses of human and horse and a movement. And what else? There's so much rich richness that could pull into that. But I think it has to do with horse giving us a little bit of courage to move forward mm-hmm. and to start to explore and mm-hmm. to start to deepen. We have horses in mythology in so many different ways, horses of the underworld, horses on earth, of course, and we have flying horses. So there's a lot of, and of horses in the sea, right? Neptune, Poseidon. Slash very very horses, fitting. Yeah. And these horses on the waves, right? And they, yeah. they move. And, and so horse is really there all over. And yeah, what does horse speak to in us? I kind of want to be not really very specific about this because I also want to, uh, a point I want to say is that shadow is unique. What is shadow yeah. to me? It'd be very different than what's shadow to you or shadow to anybody else. We do have a collective shadow, it's true. But we also have individual shadows and there's a richness going into any of these animals that tend to hold our shadow or offer us invitations into deeper aspects of ourselves through who they are. Does that make sense? I think that's very key that, you know, what's say because everyone I've seen shelves littered with books on dream interpretation and it's this house does definitively mean this and it's possible in the general it could, but your history, yeah. your experience could be very unique and unto yourself. Yeah. And I think that's what the tree seeker should be looking at first, your dream journal. And what does these symbolisms mean for you? What is the feeling and the idea that comes up with that? That's a very key point. And there was, there's another idea here that I want to talk about. And I know I mentioned the wolves and I mentioned the ravens. And I know I'm running out of time, but there's this idea of Odin also being very much a shapeshifter mm-hmm. in certain regards. And we see this concept of the shapeshifter very rich in the shamanic cultures and thinking and the shapeshifting into animal consciousness. Yeah. What's your thoughts there? Yeah. So thought, it was thought and memory are his ravens, right? I don't remember the beginning. Mm, yes, they are. Yes. Um, and, you know, and they would go out and, yeah, and see things for him that were going on. And they'd come back and sit at his shoulder and telling him, which is another way of saying we ex- we can extend our vision huh, mm-hmm. into the world and then bring that knowledge back. What did the wolves do? They were lesser known than the ravens. But, yeah, they're very um, less. They're, that's why I thought they'd be so interesting. So their names is Gary and Frecky. They sometimes represent chaos and destruction. Other times they stand at symbols of wisdom, loyalty, bravery, and protection. Ooh, maybe in that embracing of chaos and destruction. 
And I've yeah, well, like, but that's all over the place, isn't it? Chaos destruction, but then you have the other thing, which is more of the what did you say? Wisdom and loyalty. Loyalty. Yeah, wisdom, loyalty, bravery, and protection. So they're yeah. both the courage and the chaos. And yeah, courage and chaos. Well, that's good. That's a good combo, isn't it? Yeah, especially in context of what we spoke about earlier about discovering that infantile kind of grandiosity that we yeah. face at the bottom of the yeah. pit with the kraken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You need to have that at times, that ability to kind of, you know, squatch things. And that's why I think in the shadow, sometimes bringing out your inner bully is really good because sometimes we need to bring that out and stand up against certain people and stand our ground. And again, that's the gift of the shadow of these, all these parts of ourselves. So, oh. I mean, doesn't Jordan well, nice point about that? Odin. Odin was such a powerful god, huh? Yeah, yeah. But again, I think it's, I think it's one of those archetypes that, and it so perfectly fits into the shadow metaphors we're speaking about, when we're unconscious of it, its expression yeah. in our life is very unhealthy and very destructive and very bad. Same as the violence tendency, right? The violence tendency can be very unhealthy in its immature, but in its mature, it's the ability to protect my family and is the ability to stand right. up for what is right and to protect those that can't protect themselves. So again, how does we need to feed the shadow, so to speak, again, in order to bring it in to ourselves. Into ourselves in a balanced way. So that we know when to judiciously use violence or to speak up and to, to use. And they're not necessarily dark things. It's how we use it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I, saying a gun is bad or a knife is bad. It's how is it being used? Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's not necessarily in our favor to just sit back passively and just accept everything the way it is. No, we can have a, a healthier form of activism uh, and we need to be considerate of the group, I think. And that's something also that animals teach us as well. All these kind of this connection with nature and our relationship with nature, which kind of leads me to the curiosity. Then there's obviously shadow plants as well in terms of our experience yeah. wouldn't that be an interesting book to write i'm like, hinting i'm hinting <laughs> yeah. have a background in plants but i love that idea because yeah how are plants used plant medicine plants poisons or cures right dependent on how they're used and in what dosage and it's like that's true with a lot of things with food and other things it was your chapter on frog that made me think of that as well because again we see frog in these unique kind of ways but then it also reminds me of how certain shamans and psychedelic seekers would actually use the poison from frogs to open themselves up and yeah. part of that traits become quite abusive but the idea of that the poisons are there and they open us up to other things i've even looked at the i don't know how accurate or true this is but there's some statements that certain peacocks will utilize a certain type of poison to enrich the color of their wings as they interpret you know do that so it's this relationship that the raw wilderness has with poison with chaos with all of these things yeah. like the wolves of um gary and freaky the wolves of odin as we just discussed right the right. the relate right. the different relationship with chaos that also strengthens us if we approach it with maturity and responsibility and ownership <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the trick, isn't it? It's finding that balanced place inside that listens to the heart as well as the head and the soul and the body. It's like, and when they're all aligned, then we know when to do. It's when we're out of alignment that we get kerfuffled. We don't right, know right. what on or how to react, and then we revert to those old triggers and those old patterns of lashing out, angry words, angry actions. Which that's where we are right now in the world, isn't it? Crazy times right now. 
Isn't that also like a, like a signpost on the way when you find yourself top heavy on one or the other? You're too much in your head. You're too much in, in the belly, so to speak. And you're not in the feeling you're not really able to balance the two out. That's when we're being affected. We're controlled by the unconscious and we're no longer in control. We're possessed by the spirit. Spirit's eating us instead of us consuming it and taking the it back. and coming up to get you. Yeah. There we go. There we go. So I'll say so closing idea, because I've stolen a lot of the extra time here and I just I've loved the conversation. It's been so fascinating connecting with you. How do we communicate with animals in this context? How do we build that relationship, not just beyond the recognition of the shadow, but really going deeper in and actually connecting with those? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, I meant to say this before, kind of about what's the key or where when we find our center. I'm again, I'm not a one person or one size fits all person. I feel like we really need to speak from and interact with the world from who we are. We all have unique gifts. We all have unique abilities. So what speaks to you in that way? How do you want to connect with an animal or an animal guide? You know, is it through your dreams? Is it through being in the world, through swimming with whales? Is it through inner voyaging? Is it through just being quiet and feeling it, sometimes we get just downloads of energy from animals when we open ourselves. I, I guess I'd like to end on the note of empowering everybody who's listening to this to do it in the unique way that speaks to them. Mm. If you don't know what speaks to you, close your eyes, get calm, get centered. Hmm, how could I do this? How could I speak to this kraken that's coming up? <laughs> mm. Right? Or the wolf. How do I speak with Odin's wolves or with the raven or with the eagle or with the cat that comes to me in my dreams? What speaks to me? And I think when we practice getting quiet and getting centered, we have all the answers. The answers are here. You don't need to go out there to get the answers. So I think the more we trust ourselves, and listen to that small, wise voice within. The more aligned we automatically are. And the answers are there. They really are. <laughs> that, that was perfectly It's well. all here. Exactly. I feel like science has shown us that the observer has an impact on the physical world. Kabbalah and spiritual systems in the world has shown us that there's infinite intelligence that exists within each and every one of us. Our fallacy, I think, as human beings is we've become so insecure in ourselves. Yeah. That yeah. we are, but it's the next trend that has the answers, the next self-help yeah. book. And yeah. we forget the yeah. ancient wisdom that sits in our own, that, that tiger that was hiding up in the cupboard, you know, again, right. that I think we all need to discover in our own lives. So Don, that was a beautiful journey. Thank you so much for sharing uh, with us. I really enjoyed talking with you. This was so much fun. So thank you. No, thank you. I hope we get to have you back for future books and ideas as well. And I'm going to go and review or read all your other books. And then I'm going to be calling you up again for another conversation if you're up for the chat. Oh, good. Well, I look forward to it. I do. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time here. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Me as well.